Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As the planet warms, winter is shrinking. In the last 50 years, the Northern Hemisphere has lost a million square miles of spring snowpack. In the U.S. alone, snow cover has been reduced by 15 to 30 percent. On average, winter has shrunk by a month in most northern latitudes. In his new book, The Last Winter, journalist Porter Fox travels along the edge of the Northern Hemisphere's snow line to track the scope of this drastic change and how it will literally change everything. Porter Fox was born in New York, raised in the coast of Maine. He's the author previously of Northland, a 4,000-mile journey along America's forgotten border, and Deep, the story of skiing and the future of snow. And he teaches at Columbia University School of Arts, is a McDowell Fellow, and won the Western Press Association Award in 2014. Um, and Porter Fox, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. We talked to you about Northland and about Deep as well. Now the new book, very interesting. Um, I want to start there. What um, you? This is where you you spend your time as what you call the cryosphere, kind of the the north, the ice, snow, the cold. Um, what is it about that that attracts you? Think. Yeah, I can. I keep ending up there. It's um, it is very cold. I grew up in northern Maine, so it is kind of my natural habitat, I guess. Um, and uh, this book really was an extension of the reporting that I did for Deep originally, which which really Deep focused on the ski industry, future of skiing, future of snow. And while I was researching that, I came across these much larger uh, planetary. I guess, trends uh, that were pretty disturbing. And I touched on it in deep, but this book is completely about that. It's really about snow as a source of water for 2 billion people, uh, including many in Utah, um, about snow as this kind of buffer that has kept runaway climate change from happening and has kind of stabilized our climate over the last 10,000 years. So it really, I ended up spending a lot more time um, on this journey um, in the cryosphere, which is defined as places around the world where water exists in its solid form, um, more with scientists and um, folks like that rather than um, ski bums and, and powder hounds like in deep. I'd like to start uh, with, uh, and there's some fascinating, fascinating characters. We'll get to some of them in this conversation. I'd like to start with Ernesto Costa um, in, the, in the Alps. Is this Italy? It's in the Dolomites. It's in the Dolomites, yeah, yeah absolutely. The uh, the founder, proprietor, builder of uh, La Perla, which is a, a really kind of an institution over there, one of the first um, on-mountain hotels that uh, started the, the ski industry in that part of Italy. Yeah, so you meet him, 90 years old when you when you met him, uh, when you talked to him. Um, speaks Ladin? I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, Ladin, it's, um, it's, they call it uh, like a, a vulgar Latin. It's sort of a, a Latin that was formed way back when Roman soldiers uh, kind of invaded the Alps and tried to tame the Alpine tribes that it's lived there somewhat lawlessly for, for many hundreds, even thousands of years. Um, and in the Latin valleys, um, instead of fighting the Roman invaders, they um, they were mostly a Raetian tribe at the time, and they just joined them and kind of joined into the army ranks, helped them fight, and then were able to go back to their homes and settle 
and their lang- Raetian language kind of melded with um, this vulgar Latin that the soldiers spoke, created a whole new language that 80% of the people in the Latin Valley still speak that primarily at home, and, and they've done a tremendous amount to uh, maintain their, their cultural heritage and um, actually operate as a self-governing commune within um, the, the Kingdom of Italy. So they're uh, extremely independent and pr- one of the oldest Alpine civilizations um, in the world. It's kind of as it is now and similar to, you know, as it was 2,000 years ago. And Ernesto Costa was uh, instrumental in building up the winter industry there, right? Skiing industry, and he's uh, started this this uh, very uh, elegant uh, hotel there. The reason I want to start with him is he uh, he's where I think, you know, still a lot of people are uh, today. As you talk to him, um, he doesn't believe in human-caused climate change. He, 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 he tells you, in 90 years, of course, the long span of life, uh, he told you, uh, well, you know, we've had cold periods, we've had warm periods, and the snow will always come back. Exactly, and and I've I've met a lot of people that believe in that. They have their various reasons. Very smart, very savvy, um, so experienced in mountain travel and and avalanche safety and all these things having to do with snow. The interesting thing in the Alps is that people have lived there, especially in the Latin Valley, for so long. Their family tree goes back seven, eight, ten generations, during which time they saw planetary uh, warming and cooling cycles that were all naturally caused, very subtle changes, maybe plus or minus 0.5 or 1 degree Celsius in which the glaciers moved quite quickly, forward when it was cooling, backward when it was warming. And, I mean, in Switzerland, they even have laws um, regarding who owns land that a glacier reveals as it recedes and who is responsible for it when the glaciers grow and knock down houses and entire towns. So having seen that and having um, kind of received the you know lore of his uh, family tradition and, and things that, you know, stories from way, way, way back about, well, where did we used to graze the cows, you know? Where did this stream end and begin? And um, he's seen so much movement, um, and, and his kind of generation had heard stories about so much glacial movement that this, on the surface... It just looks like that. It looks like another one of these natural oscillations. And what's kind of hard to explain is that both of these things are possible. Natural climate oscillations have happened on Earth since day one, billions of years ago. This is something that happens with volcanic eruptions can cool a a region. A shifting ocean current can warm a region or cool it drastically. Um, right now, we have those natural oscillations happening alongside uh, 200 years of industrialization and a massive, massive input of carbon into the atmosphere, which has been proven for many, many decades now um, to insulate the atmosphere, insulate the sun's heat coming down, and um, create this greenhouse effect, which is warming Earth very radically right now. I want to get into that, but before we leave this uh, story of Ernesto Costa and the, uh, this institutional memory that they have, and you know, ancestral memory, uh, there's an image 
they have a memory. You go back a couple of centuries or whatever it is of uh, glaciers, you know, destroying villages. And uh, so you'd, you'd get out the priest and he'd stand in front of the glacier and uh, I guess try to rebuke it, slow, <laughs> slow the slow the advance so it didn't uh, destroy destroy the next village. Absolutely, and they would they would sprinkle holy water on it and, and sing hymns and and try. I mean, it was you know these things are getting within twenty five feet of the church, you know, the neighbor's house. And when a glacier moves, I mean, they can really move. I, I was in Greenland near a glacier that moves right under your feet. You know, it's moving a foot every twenty minutes or so. Like it, it's like an actual river. Um, and when you go up to Alaska and look at the Juneau ice field. Anybody who fishes or is familiar with uh, or paddles the river, you know, you will see in these massive billion-ton flows of ice, waterfalls, you'll see an eddy, you'll see ripples, you'll see confluences coming together and currents swirling. I mean, it, it moves like a river, and our time on Earth is very short. In fact, all of humanity's time on Earth is incredibly short. Um, but if you were to look at the last billion years and fast forward, you would just see these rivers of ice just flowing forwards and backwards, and it's 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 quite drastic. So um, you, you were saying, in respect to uh, folks like Ernesto Costa, um, that that we can you know we can have two things, right? Uh, normal fluctuations along with this, we could call it a crisis, right? Um, so I wonder if you'd maybe outline a little more. We'll, we'll go into some specifics as we go through the hour. I'll just read a couple of things from the, from the book. Uh, things once thought to be static are now moving quickly. The planet is hotter than for 12,000 years. The poles are melting, sea ice vanishing, storm quakes up to 3.5 on the Richter scale, heat waves in Asia. Uh, this one alarmed me. Underground zombie fires burn all year in the peat of the Arctic. Uh, maybe expand on that. The, the scope of the Scope of the acceleration, I guess, of the problem. It's it's pretty shocking what's happening right now, and that and that you know comes from again the scientists and researchers that I was speaking with. Um, you know, you'd think that uh, it's it's pretty obvious that the globe is warming right now. I think we can all agree on that, and you would think that when something warms, ice melts. Like you take a piece of ice out of the refrigerator and you put it on your counter, it's slowly going to melt. Um, but it doesn't really work like that on the planet. The climate system is so complicated that when you have overall warming, it warms much faster in certain areas than other areas. Some areas are cooling while the others are warming. You would think that when it's warming, there would just be less snow in general, but that doesn't really happen. Um, complicated effects like you see uh, the Greenland ice sheet melting, blocking the Gulf Stream, which stops this warm flow of water to Europe, which actually decreases the temperature of northern Europe while everything else is warming. It's incredibly complicated like that. So one of the kind of anomalies that, that they're seeing in the Arctic and the Siberian peat moss um, and massive wildfires happening in the north is that Arctic amplification essentially means the, the poles are warming a lot faster than the middle of the planet. Uh, there's many reasons for this. Um, some of the more bizarre ones are an increase in the 
number of large thunderheads around the equator, which cycle hot air up into the stratosphere that then ends up over the Arctic. Um, uh, the biggest reason is that the Arctic at one point used to be completely covered with snow, most of it year-round. And as that snow melts, dark earth and dark water, excuse me, as that snow, sea ice, glaciers, ice caps, all of that melts, dark earth and water are revealed. Well, the snow reflects about 80% of the sun's heat back into space. That's part of this buffer I'm talking about that has really kept us in this fairly stable climate for the last 10,000 years that human civilization has really blossomed. And when that white shell vanishes, then all that heat is absorbed into the ocean, into land, and that creates a a big spike in warming in the Arctic. Um, You're seeing in Alaska, um, in Siberia, Northern Europe, these places that are warming, I mean, six degrees Celsius already. Like it is, it's very noticeable up there, super um, radical. And the the peat fires are, are a part of that. The wildfires are a part of that. And the, the, the big danger that a lot of scientists are worried about is that all of the permafrost there um, in Arctic Canada and Alaska and parts of Siberia, it has a tremendous amount of greenhouse gases like methane frozen in it. It has always been frozen since we've been around anyway. And if that were to thaw, those gases would very likely go up into the atmosphere and create this very sudden and very unstoppable climate change um, that you know we have no control over. So there's there's tipping points like that that when you hear people say like, "Hey, let's stop climate change. Hey, let's stop burning coal. Hey, stop whatever." It's not about like this day to day like, "Hey, let's keep things like kind of cool." It's more like let's avoid this planetary catastrophe that would change everything um, and try to get out in front of it because it's we're in a decade right now as everybody has heard that it's a very important one we're, we're trying to get on a new track to avoid a lot of those um, really natural climate change tipping points what are the scientists uh, telling you uh, how how likely is this to, to happen and uh, I, I know there, there is there are moments of hope in the book. There, there are things we can do. We'll get into that as we go along. But to what um, absent, I guess, increase in action or solutions, how likely is this to happen, these tipping points to happen? I, the scientists very wisely won't put a number on that. <laughs> um, you know, that's a, they leave that up to the journalists uh, to try to um, compile everything and create a forecast for the future. I'll, t- I'll just say this. It doesn't have to go that way. We still have time, and we have uh, a pretty small amount of time. Um, most people are saying a decade or so to make uh, a radical shift in um, how we burn fossil fuel. We have a moment here to stop burning fossil fuel, stop putting these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere um, to avoid those changes. You know, the change, if we don't, if we go on status quo, as honestly we are right now, um, or even just these kind of symbolic shifts that nations are making that aren't getting us on the track we need to be, you're not going to really see the changes until later in the century. So, you know, we can go through a decade or two of, of kind of having our head in the sand and maintaining our lifestyle and, you know, keeping people in charge who don't really believe in any of this stuff. 
Um, but by the time it is uh, really radically changing our environment and our lifestyles, and there in Utah, it's obviously going to be um, the the continuation and the deepening of this mega drought that's been shaping over the U.S. West. You know, it's kind of too late at that point. So that's why I think the researchers and, and even activists even more are saying, like, this is the decade. This is the moment we have to put ourselves onto a nice, gradual shift away from putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Let's keep the permafrost frozen. Let's keep the ice caps frozen. Let's keep sea level from wiping out our coastal cities. And um, if we start now, we can do it in a manageable way. If we start in 20 years, it A, it might not be possible. B, if it is, it's going to be extremely expensive in, in every way. I want to just read a paragraph here uh, from your book where you, you kind of put this on a personal basis. Uh, so this is Porter Fox uh, from his book, The Last Winter. All the mountains I'd skied had always been distinct in my mind. Now I saw them knitted together in a white blanket. Knowing that a winterless, inhospitable climate was coming for them and for Sarah, which your wife and me, was one thing. But the thought of Gray, that's your daughter, I think, uh, scratching out an existence in a superheated world was sickening. What would she do in the year 2080, when most of the snow in the United States would be gone and New York City's climate would be that of Jonesboro, Arkansas today? How could anyone think about anything else right now? If I were diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, I would do what the doctor prescribed. Um, you talked about symbolic action, that you, uh, you feel like more urgent action is, is needed. We just had a big conference right in Copenhagen, I think, right? Would, it was, mm-hmm. would you put that in the symbolic category or, or real action taken there? Yeah, well, COP, COP26 is happening in Glasgow right now. And oh, Glasgow, yes. I, to be perfectly honest, I actually think most of these world leaders are pretty scared right now. I actually think that, you know, they are privy to information that we are not. I, I think um, that the Pentagon saying that climate change is now one of, you know, the top worries about national defense in the, in the U.S., a, a major threat to political stability here. Um, that's real. That That's coming from people that really maybe didn't want to believe in climate change, but are saying, hey, this is going to affect everybody's life here. You know, and we have a pretty pretty good life, most of us, um, at this point. So I, I feel like symbolic change is happens in campaigns, <laughs> and then real change, um, you know, can happen in in the government. I mean, we I can go out and you know get an electric vehicle. We everyone who hears this show can get an electric vehicle. That'll put a dent in it. But at this late stage in the game, and it is a very late stage in the game, it really takes national and international policy change um, that forces power companies to get clean, you know, that forces the grid to be modernized and, and create storage so renewables can be more effective. You know, we can't do that as citizens. What we can do is we can have our voice heard and we can vote and we can help get people, you know, into power to make those changes happen. But, uh, you know, short of that, um, we should be living our best, you know, lowest impact lives. Um, But, you know, I wouldn't say that's just symbolic, but it's not going to move the needle 
um, like these national and international um, policy changes will. Well, let's take a break. Uh, we'll come back with more with uh, Porter Fox. His uh, latest book is The Last Winter. Um, and he says, as the planet warms, winter is shrinking. And we've talked about that. We'll uh, give you some more data points as well as we go along and uh, have you meet some more fascinating uh, people, scientists and others, uh, who Porter Fox uh, presents to us, introduces us to in his book. And we'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, presenting Georgia on My Mind, celebrating the music of Ray Charles, featuring Clint Holmes, Take Six, Nena Freelon, and Tom Scott, along with the USU Chamber Singers November 15th at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cashearts.org. Support also comes from Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. This is Ag Matters. Top quality chocolate is made from just two ingredients, cacao and sugar. But chocolate is the culmination of many factors, including where and how cacao is grown, harvested, fermented, and how the beans were roasted, processed, and stored. A food science course at Utah State University titled Chocolate, Science, History, and Society fills each year with students who gain hands-on experience in laboratory sessions at the Aggie Chocolate Factory, the only university-run chocolate science facility in North America. The Aggie Chocolate Factory also supports research opportunities and collaborations with the confectionery industry. Learn more at AggieChocolate.com. This has been Ag Matters from the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences at Utah State University. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with the journalist uh, Porter Fox. Uh, his latest book out now is The Last Winter. And uh, in the book, he travels along the edge of the Northern Hemisphere's snow line to track the scope of a drastic change going on in the cryosphere and uh, tells us how it will literally change everything from rapid sea level rise to freshwater scarcity for 2 billion people to massive greenhouse gas emissions, and, and the list goes on. Uh, so, Porter Fox, that's where I'd like to begin this segment. Um, you talk in the book uh, about where the cryosphere has been, where it is, and where it's going. Uh, maybe a definition, what is the cryosphere? Yeah, the cryosphere is, um, well, it's places on the planet where you can find water in its solid form, so ice and snow. Um, you're going to see it mostly on the ice caps, North Pole, South Pole, Greenland ice sheet, uh, West Antarctic ice sheet, and then your seasonal snow that, as we all know, every winter it slowly kind of creeps down towards the equator and then, and then recedes. Um, and, you know, that's largely where it was. Um, one indication of how much uh, ice has melted from the poles recently is they, they recently discovered that the rotational axis of the Earth has shifted uh, in the last few decades because of all of the ice that has melted into the sea, and then that mass is dispersed elsewhere on the planet. So we're literally changing the way that the Earth spins through space right now. Wow. 
one other uh, data point. This uh, impressed me. You say the in the, in the past, going back in the past, with the, you said the ice mass was so immense that it had its own gravitational field that raised local sea levels and affected tides. Absolutely. And, and in fact, it still does. Um, the Greenland ice sheet, West Antarctic ice sheet, attract water to them. They have their own gravitational field, as, as subtle as it is. Um, so when you see the Greenland ice sheet melting, you would think there would be massive sea level rise along the East Coast, but it's not really there. It, it actually loses gravitational mass as it melts, and therefore the sea level rise is felt in Jakarta, which is so bizarre. Yeah. And when the West Antarctic ice sheet is melting, you feel it on the east coast of the U.S. Um, th- these are the climactic um, water cycle, heat cycle, um, world weather patterns that are just so complicated that, that really scientists are they're still getting their head around what might happen. Um, which, you know, makes it, you know, skeptics a little bit, um, you know, gives them a bit more confidence that they don't, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but the general, the general trends are, you know, pretty disturbing. And to illustrate the, the fact that this is all interconnected, you write that uh, Siberia affects American weather as much as or more than El Nino does. Yeah, it does. And that, again, is the reflective surface. Um, it's, they call it albedo um, in science, uh, it's related to the Latin word for white. Um, so that reflective um, surface that typically covers all of Siberia um, creates high-pressure systems, which then veers uh, moisture, uh, rain belt-type moisture systems, atmospheric rivers, north or south around it. Um, and has always affected weather in California, Wyoming, Utah, you know, in the, in the U.S. West. Um, it's it's a really amazing. I mean, you know, there's a lot of doomsday statistics and things to worry about in this book. There's also some just incredible um, information that scientists were telling me about snow, the properties of snow, how snow shaped our world, how the these um, water towers of snow and ice in the Himalayas and the Rockies, the Andes and whatnot, uh, really were the basis for the world's first cities and nations. The the water flowing out from there was a natural place to settle, and you see the largest population centers on the planet kind of wrapped around the tendrils of these these great snow masses. Um, it's it's a it's it's a really incredible thing. As a lifetime skier. You know, I've always worshipped snow. I lived in Jackson Hole for five years and skied, um, you know, Alta and Snowbird and Brighton. And and I worked for Powder for 20 years. I mean, that was like my life. And to find these these almost spectral qualities of snow that that we just enjoyed for skiing Powder um, is it's really cool. It was like a, it was a really uh, fun part of the book to research. You mentioned earlier in our conversation uh, that this, you know, this belt of ice and snow uh, has a protective uh, quality. I wonder if you could uh, remind us about that and what uh, expand on that that a bit. And uh, that, that protection would be lost, obviously, if if we lose that cryosphere. It's yeah, and it's and it's very multi-tiered in, in the global sense. Like I mentioned, it is like a reflector. It's like a giant reflector draped around the planet 
where this planet would be extremely hot if it didn't have all of those square miles reflecting solar radiation back into space. That's pretty obvious. On a smaller scale, and this really just came out in the last 8 to 10 years or so, um, the spike in U.S. wildfires, uh, wildfires in the U.S. West, are now one of the primary drivers of those fires is a lack of snowpack uh, in alpine forests. So where you're seeing larger fires, where you're seeing the fire season expand starting earlier, lasting later, most of those regions are in areas that used to have a solid spring snowpack. That snow is different than rain where it sits there and it very slowly releases the water in it over the course of months rather than in one quick deluge. So that slow release of water is what forests need. It's what, it's what keeps them healthy. It's what keeps them from getting dry and uh, becoming a real risk for wildfire. So uh, some really terrific studies um, over the last 10 years have pointed out just how many of these giant fires really started in places that typically would have been covered with snow, would have been well watered, and would not have um, caught fire with a lightning strike. Uh, so there's there's one protective quality that's vanishing in the West. Um, you know, right there in Utah and throughout much of the West, you know, you can see the Colorado River, which is mostly snowmelt fed. Um, and I think everybody's probably fairly well versed on how many cities, 40 million people, half dozen cities in the West depend on that river um, for their water supply. And primarily that is a water supply that isn't coming from anywhere else in the summer and fall. Um, and that snowmelt kind of keeps it flowing. Um, but, you know, Colorado, you know, river flows in the 21st century could be 20 to 30 percent lower on the, you know, on the, compared to now on the, on the track that we're on. Um, I mean, even, even more local for you, 80% of the Wasatch Front's water comes from snowmelt runoff. Um, and, you know, as the second driest state in the Union, um, that water storage is incredibly important um, to Utah and to everybody downstream on the, on the Colorado River. Yeah, that's certainly very true. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Porter Fox, uh, journalist. His uh, latest book is The Last Winter, and that's out and available uh, now. Um, so I, I uh, want to have you talk a bit about some of these fascinating people that you've talked to. Maybe you, we can uh, talk next uh, and get us a segue into scientists who are looking at where glaciers are going and where the cryosphere is going. So uh, Seth Campbell, uh, a fascinating, fascinating character. One one little sentence you say, Seth Campbell doesn't sleep. I mean, he does, but it's uh, three hours a, a, a night or day or whatever it is. And uh, he, he blames his dad. <laughs> Seth is incredible. He's a fellow Mainer. And uh, his dad was quite a force of nature. He used to wake uh, Seth and his sister up at 4.30 in the morning when, when he was going to work just so the kids knew what that felt like. Um, so Seth now doesn't sleep at all by his choice. Um, he uh, is a professor and works at the University of Maine. He is the co-director of the Juno Icefield Research Program, which is the second older, oldest uh, polar research station in the world. 
and is doing some of the most important work on the cryosphere and climate change um, on the planet. Um, this guy just, everyone goes to sleep. He gets out his laptop and he starts writing grants. He starts emailing faculty. He starts getting, uh, you know, researchers interested in coming to the program to, to test their stuff. I mean, when I was in Juneau, I, I visited the, uh, the Icefield Research Program uh, in 2019, and uh, there were 75 people there. I mean, this is in a, in a tiny little kind of shanty in the middle of the ice field that most everyone had, had walked to, and they walk across the ice field in the course of this summer program. Um, about uh, a little over half are students. The rest are faculty, and all of the faculty is there to research. They are testing equipment that they're going to take to Antarctica in the next month or two. They are testing theories that they've developed in the lab back in Colombia, New York City, um, over in uh, Europe, and uh, at Caltech in California. They bring all of their gear and their staff there um, and are searching for bacteria living within the ice pack. They're looking for um, ways to uh, drill through the, uh, basically take ice core samples in the next Mars rover that's going to Mars. But the, the number of scientists that Seth knows, including himself, that are involved in the Mars rover project um, and drilling ice cores on the moons of Jupiter and on, you know, on the planet of Mars in the next 30 years even is, is just incredible. Um, they, they are, their science is young and still being developed, and yet it has become so vital to predicting climate change, to searching for life on other planets. Um, they've really had the spotlight trained on them. And, and Seth Campbell is like, you know, I call him an ice hustler. He's like the guy in the middle of all of this, connecting people and, uh, and making things happen. So it was, it was a real honor to be able to spend some time with him. By the way, what's it what's it like on a glacier? You've been out there, right? Uh, you'd see these pictures, people roped up with their ice picks. Um, one thing that you that you mentioned that I maybe wouldn't have thought of uh, the lights just so intense and so reflected. You got to really protect yourself so your retina doesn't get burned. Uh, but you're out there in the cold. You got deep crevasses. Sometimes those are hidden, you know, covered over. Uh, tell me what it's like out there. Well, you're absolutely right. It's not very cold. <laughs> That's the first thing I noticed. Um, it, there's so much. You feel the albedo. You feel that radiation hitting the snow, bouncing right up. And for anybody that's been on a multi-day ski tour through the Wasatch, you know you have to put sunscreen on the bottom of your nose, right where your nostrils are, and on the bottom of your chin. And, like, that radiation bouncing up, like, it really burns you quickly. Um, so on the, you know, when we were out on the glacier and we were there in the summer, so of course it was warmer, um, we were in a t-shirt, you know, we were wearing snow pants and a t-shirt and touring around the ice, um, always, uh, almost always roped up, uh, cause of the glacier issue. Um, as the planet warms, as these cold regions warm, the ice is fracturing a lot more. It is receding faster, moving faster in many directions, and crevasses are opening up where they never were before. So they're, they're having, as they 
honestly, as their science becomes like the premier climate change science, it is also getting harder and harder to do because, number one, the ice is cracking and opening up. Number two, it's just disappearing. Um, so they are kind of in a race against time. Um, the ice core drilling unit that was in Juneau when I was there uh, was telling me some stories about drilling in, in Antarctica and on the Swates Glacier and West Antarctic Shelf, um, how they're racing around the planet getting ice cores as fast as they can. Because this is, they're going for million-year-old ice that has million-year-old air bubbles frozen into it ash smears from volcanic eruptions, um, evidence of what happened in the past on this planet, which is really vital to knowing what's going to happen next. So the, the work they're doing is just so incredibly important, and um, it's, uh, it's getting more and more stressful. You write that the glaciers are melting at a historic rate. A couple of examples. Half the glacial ice in the Alps has vanished since the 1800s, and the Himalayas are losing 8 billion tons of ice a year. Uh, Very fast uh, changes, um, an acceleration, it seems like. It's it's incredibly fast, and the effects are bizarre. I mean, in, in the Alps, you know, you look at the Eiger, the Jungfrau, you look at the Matterhorn, I mean, these are the things that are in Disney, you know, movies and animations. Like, it's just, we, we, we sort of, as humans think, things will always be the way they are, and, and they're not going to change. And these iconic summits are not only melting, and the now, you know, the snow line is rising, so you have the, these muddy bottoms to these mountains, which I never saw as a kid when I was lucky enough to go over there. Um, but now that mountains are actually starting to fall apart, as the permafrost binding a lot of the, the Alps are unique, and then a lot of their summits are held together with this permafrost, this, these ice crystals that bind the rock together. And as that melts, massive chunks, entire mountaintops are falling off. And as, you know, similar to the Ladin Valleys, the Alps are so civilized, there's so many people per square mile in this mountain range that villages live under the fear of, uh, it's almost like an air raid siren, um, of a possible landslide, um, a glacier collapse, um, a glacial dam outburst, um, really like, you know, these massive, uh, you know, trucking arteries that go through the Alps as well um, are in danger of being shut down at any moment. Um, there's just a lot of ancillary damage like that that's happening that I don't think a lot of people expected, you know, even 10 years ago. And it's it's happening so fast now that it's they're having a hard time keeping up. I was uh, fascinated by uh, the, you know, all the scientists here, but I wonder if you tell me about uh, Ali Balter. Uh, who studies where the last ice on Earth will survive. Fascinating. And this this is how scientists are so incredible to me. Um, they, they study the, the tiniest things that you think, oh, that's kind of silly. Like, who really cares about that? One of the scientists at, at the Icefield program was studying how rocks fall into a glacial valley after the glacier recedes. And you're like, what is that going to tell us? 
Um, Allie does, you know, similar studies, similar kind of minutia in, in the glacial world. Um, but she was studying, again, you would think when it's hot, all the ice goes away. And what she is studying is parts of Antarctica that had ice in some of the hottest times uh, that this planet has experienced, um, not when before there were people around. Um, and we're talking tens of millions of years ago, and she found some evidence that not only was there ice in Antarctica when this hothouse Earth scenario was kind of taking place, but that parts of that glacier were even growing. And so that's just another example of how complicated the, the climate system can be. Let's take another break. Uh, we'll come back with our last segment with uh, Porter Fox. The last book, or interesting book, is out now and available, The Last Winter, it's called. And uh, in the book, he travels along the edge of Northern Hemisphere's snow line to track the scope of a drastic change going on in the cryosphere, where the ice and snow is, and how it will literally change everything. We'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, presenting Rob Ikes and Trey Hensley, an acoustic duo melding blues, bluegrass, country, and rock, along with string band music of all kinds. November 4th at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cashearts.org. Support also comes from USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at idrpp.usu.edu. Hi, I'm Natalie Gawkner. I represent the Political Center. Join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices representing the right, the center, and the left. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing residents of this state while proving that Republicans and Democrats can sit in a small room and have a meaningful conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Porter Fox. His latest book is The Last Winter. And we have about six minutes left in the conversation. Porter Fox, um, I was very fascinated by your visit with a gentleman called Michael Fassler, uh, Swiss Alpine Museum. Um, and this is kind of strikes an elegiac uh, tone. Um, he, he talked about how skiing is disappearing which will, you know, hit, hit us in Utah, of course. Um, and he, uh, he, he took you to take a look at the Lost and Found Memories Office. Is that what he calls it? <laughs> this was uh, very poignant. Uh, this, yeah, that was the name of the exhibit that, that he had come up with. And um, they actually collected uh, ski gear from the last 50, 75 years or so, had, had people from Bern, uh, Switzerland, come in and drop off their old ski suits. Uh, some Olympic gold medalists donated their, their downhill skis. And, um, you know, funny hats and, and even going back to replaceable wooden ski tips back when, um, you know, ski tips used to snap off, apparently, uh, quite often on the ski hill. Um, and, uh, I mean, honestly, it was profoundly sad to look at this and to hear this guy talk about 
his experience skiing the Alps when he, when he was a boy, um, you know, winter ski break was something that almost the entire continent um, experienced and celebrated, and everybody went to the Alps and they went skiing with their family. And for, for many reasons, not just disappearing snow, um, that just doesn't happen anymore. Um, people, you know, the ski resorts are seeing way less visitation, just like in the States, they have to open later, sometimes missing the holiday season. They have to close you know, later in the year. They have to close earlier in the year. Uh, there aren't as many powder days. There isn't as much um, chitter-chatter back in the back in the city about how great the skiing was. And it's it's just slowly kind of going away. And uh, he, he did a little experiment with um, some younger kids. And he showed him pictures of Switzerland from, the, I think it's from the 1970s or so. And giant heaps of snow um, all the way down in Bern and, and obviously up in the resorts as well. And the kids could not believe that that was in Switzerland. They just couldn't believe it. They, they'd never seen anything like that. Um, and I, you know, I think that you would probably see the same thing here. You know, I think if I showed my daughter pictures of um, what northern Maine looked like when I was growing up compared to now, um, you know, I think I think she'd be she'd be pretty surprised. You know, and um, you, you see the same kind of project iterations of this project happening all over the world, right here in the states with um, the terrific group Protect Our Winters, who's been advocating for snow and and um, pushing for climate change legislation, reminding people, hey, you know, th- this is this is our heritage. This is the thing that we've loved. We grew up. As skiers, we grew up as snow people, and this is our job to at least push as hard as we can to to try to save winter. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left uh, here. Uh, at the end, uh, maybe expand on that. Uh, the, the, where you were going there, you know, on a hopeful note. What what can folks do? What would you suggest? Again, I, I have to reiterate: there is time. There is about a decade to make these policy changes um, to shift away from fossil fuels into renewables, the, the greatest thing people can do, um, and, and this is just truly from my heart, is join a group like Protect Our Winters, a group that is already tied in with annual visits to Washington, D.C., to talk to legislators, to tell them why they need to save winter, save snow, save skiing, and they're doing it already, and the more that we can support them, that's the biggest lever that I can find. I have my journalism where I can get the message across, but in terms of activism, it's groups like that, Natural Resources Defense Council, the Sierra Club, um, again, Protect Our Winners is just the place to go to say, hey, I'm going to put my you know time, money, effort, energy, whatever behind this. Because this is this is us. This is our generation. This is our fight. We've had a relatively easy go of it so far in terms of, you know, international crises. And uh, this this is uh, this is time for us to really bear down and and try to protect our children's future. Well, the book is out now. A very interesting book uh, and important. Uh, the last winter it's called. And uh, Porter Fox, the author, has uh, joined us. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Tom. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. We'll go out as we always do uh, on a Thursday with uh, Leo T and Skywatcher. 
It's many cultures, one sky. As we look up, look around, get a little lost in space, let's do a little star exploration with Nehru. <laughs> talking with Nehru. I am born and raised in India, and I came to the uh, University of Utah as a graduate student, and that was almost 20 years ago, and we've lived here ever since. We're out here at this park looking at the half moon and can't see the sunset, but we're up here watching the kite fly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it's a beautiful place to come watch the stars and the sunset. Not today, of course, but most other nights, yes. Mm, yeah, the stars will come out eventually. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the stars in, mm -hmm. your, in your country of India, mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit about the sky, Lord? Absolutely. So, um, in Indian culture, uh, when a person is born, they actually draw out a chart based on the location of the planets and stars in the sky um, at the precise time and date a person was born. And based on that, they are able to predict uh, special events, major changes in your life, and even possibly when you would die. It's called a Janam Patri, or basically a birth chart. Um, and a lot of Indian families still consult that for marriage matches, or for moving into a new home, or uh, buying something valuable. Uh, so it's got a very big role to play for sure. Uh, the other story that you and I have talked about, Leonard, is that of the Pole Star. Um, yes. And in India, there's a story about a young king. He was only six years old. Uh, his name was Dhruva, and he apparently wanted the affection of his father, who had a, who had a second wife and a stepbrother. And so uh, when the queen, his stepmom, found out that he wanted to sit on the lap of the king, his father, she said, uh, no, you need to do a lot more penance to, do, um, to, do, to sit on your dad's lap. So he took it very seriously and he prayed to the lords for years and years uh, and eventually was able to sustain inner peace. And apparently at that time, the Lord, uh, the God, gods of the world, uh, granted him a wish and turned him into a star where he remains a pole star. Apparently he came back after he was granted the wish and became a king, but he's still visible in the night sky as the pole star. Now I don't know how true it is scientifically, but that's what it goes based on mythology. Is that what we refer to here as Venus? I think so, yes. The pole star, or Venus, shines brightly in the dusk. Also, as we do a little space exploration of our own, tune in to the Cat's Eye Nebula. The Cat's Eye Nebula is high in the north, wrapped in the coils of long, relaxed Draco the Dragon, which resides above the Big Bear or the Big Dipper. It's visible through a small telescope or with your imagination. It represents the colorful glow of a star which is expelling its outer layers into space. Or a little closer, Jupiter is at its closest approach to Earth right now and is brighter than any other time of the year. Even with binoculars, you can make out a couple of Galilean moons shifting every night in the bands of Jupiter. So look up, look around, get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. On UPR, Utah Public Radio, with translator stations statewide and streaming live. America is about to witness the birth of an industry, one that will reshape where we get our power and who benefits, offshore wind energy. 
There is simply no reason why the blades for wind turbines can't be built in Pittsburgh instead of Beijing. I'm Annie Ropeek. From APM and NHPR comes Windfall, a deep dive into a sea change on the horizon. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This week in This American Life, Alex is stranded on an island. No cell phone, no food, his boat's out of gas. And he's just across the water from New York City. You can see planes landing. You can see sky, skyscrapers. And on the other side, you can die looking at them, you know? Like, and also, I got a little mad at the city of New York. Like, I, couldn't, I could understand if they had just one payphone there. This week. Saturday morning at 10, here on UPR. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSK Vernal, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSL Richfield, KUSR Logan, and KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org or on the UPR app. The Church and Crown collide when King Henry II names his reluctant friend Thomas Becket the Archbishop of Canterbury. My lord, I see now that you weren't joking. Don't do this! Why not? It frightens me. Becket, this is an order. Dennis O'Hare and Simon Templeman star in Becket or the Honor of God by Jean Ennui. Next time on LA Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. <laughs> 